Papa John, thank you for reading the Word of God to us tonight. If you uh, signed up for Roy Jr., you can go ahead and head down with Sean to that. I want to thank um, the, uh, the Red Oak food team and all other folks who helped to serve. Anybody in the church who gives, you made it possible for us this past Friday to give lunch to all of the schools in our community, um, to the teachers and administrators. Uh, I know that they appreciated that. I got some texts. Um, it's always delicious, homemade chicken, coleslaw, apple crisp, amazing. Um, I was able to, uh, I had the honor to deliver uh, one of the um, lunches to, I went to the elementary school, and, uh, and as I was driving away, I noticed that the, uh, the kids were playing tag on the playground. Isn't tag a great game, right? It's very simple, um, but anybody can play it. Well, young to young, young to old, old to old, um, anybody can play tag. I've heard of uh, a lot of people playing tag for many different, uh, for, for years. The game just continues on, but I've never heard um, this. I read this this week. There was a couple of brothers who were born in the late 1850s that had a game of tag that they played for seven decades. For 70 years, they played tag. And one of the brothers died in 1933, and his last words on his deathbed were, last tag, and he died. Can you imagine? <laughs> like, hey, I got something to tell you, brother. Come here. <laughs> You're it. <laughs> and then gone, you know? Like, that's, that's very well played. Uh, some folks like to use humor um, to lighten a very somber moment, right? The most somber moment in life is the end of life when you take your final breath. And so um, I spent way too much time this week um, reading famous last words from people. You can go to the internet, just type in famous last words and read for a long time. Um, but final words carry more weight to them than any other words we speak in our lives. There's something about last words. No matter how old the person is, who is passing away, right? Final words have a depth of meaning unlike any others. Uh, last Sunday, Zach preached Genesis 48, where we saw that Jacob adopted and blessed Joseph's sons. And tonight, we're going to see in Genesis 49, Jacob's last words to his sons before he breathes his last. And this passage reminds us that sin has multi-generational consequences despite God's blessings. He can, he, we still get God's blessings, but sin still has consequences. Also, one of the major themes of this chapter is God's sovereign grace. So God's sovereign grace and his plan about carrying out um, his plan through this sinful family. And the seed of the woman, which we've seen all through the book of Genesis, from Genesis chapter 3, the promised blessing of the snake crusher would come through the line of Judah. Now, ultimately, we know and we will see God's grace triumph over any sin in our passage tonight. So let's pray. And we'll dive into the text together. Father God, we praise you for this evening. God, we praise you that uh, we are so ready to hear your word after worshiping uh, and exalting the name of Jesus through song, after uh, reflecting on your first coming, after uh, reflecting on your death, Lord, and, and we're, we're thankful just to be ready to hear from you tonight. We ask that you would speak to us through your word because we know that your word gives us life. Your word brings light to our eyes. It revives our souls, Lord, and it, it corrects us when we err. 
It trains us, it teaches us, and I pray that your Holy Spirit would do that tonight as we read and dive into your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. The first couple verses, uh, Jacob is assembling his children to his deathbed. So um, the, in, in the Greek, um, this is uh, kabats shema. Okay, so that's what, when he says assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob, he's saying, he's saying, you need to come together and you need to put your listening ears on. Okay, so in other words, he's like, pay attention to what I'm about to say. This is super, super important. I've had the privilege of doing many different um, devotionals, pregame devos for high school football teams. And um, usually the guys are rowdy. And if a, a good coach knows how to get his team's attention, he says, give me three. And everybody claps in unison and all of their mouths close. And so basically, that's what Jacob's doing here. He is getting their attention. He says, put your listening ears on, boys. Pay careful attention to what I'm about to say because this is a patriarch's prophetic blessing coming right before he breathes his last. And I mean, if you think about who's speaking, I think you would probably want to pay attention, right? Like this man has lived a very long time. This man has wrestled with God. This man has seen a staircase where heaven uh, is open and angels are going up and down. This man has talked to the Lord, seen the Lord, and here he's received the, the covenant blessings from his father, from his uh, God, and now he's passing them on. Final words to his sons. We should pay attention. These are super important. In verses 3 and 4, we see Reuben is who he speaks to first because Reuben is his firstborn. And these are really sad words. If you'll follow along in the text, it says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. So he shifts in verse 3 to verse 4. And you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. This is sad because it reminds us that sin has multi-generational consequences, that we remember sin, even though sin can be forgiven, right? That, that sin still has consequences. He's remembering Reuben's greatest transgression, and we read about that in Genesis 35, 22, when Reuben attempted to usurp Jacob's position and gain power in the family, and therefore, because of that, Jacob denies Reuben the inheritance of the firstborn son. He passes over him. He moves to Simeon and Levi next, and, and he's, he recalls how they treated the Shechemites. We can read about that in Genesis 34, because they slaughtered Hamor and Shechem and all the Shechemites in revenge for their sister. He recalls their bloodlust. He, re he recalls their greed. He denies them the firstborn inheritance as well. They're, he says that they're ministers of injustice. They didn't leave room for God's wrath. They took revenge upon themselves because they thought they could handle it. But God alone is the one who is just in his dealings. So the Levites are given no inheritance in the promised land, but they live in 48 scattered cities throughout Israel, which fulfills verse 7. And, and Simeon was eventually absorbed into the tribe of Judah, as Joshua 19 tells us. So Jacob's first three sons were passed over when it comes to being the leader. 
Therefore, Judah, the fourthborn, gets preeminence. The tribe of Judah becomes the royal line for Israel, from whom would come King David. And on his deathbed, King David confessed his faith in God's promise by saying in 2 Samuel 23, verse 5, He, God, has made me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. Nobody can change that. This is God's covenant. And this covenant blessing started in Abraham, is passed to Isaac, who passed it to Jacob, and now Jacob's passing it on to Judah. Let's read together in verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your right hand, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. So now it's not people bowing before Joseph. It's people bowing before Judah. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his fowl to the vine, his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine, his vestures in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. This is not about Judah. Okay, this is a prophetic blessing talking about the coming Messiah. All of the imagery here in this blessing to Judah points to Jesus. The lion, the people bowing, the scepter, the staff, the obedience of the peoples, the donkey, the vine, the garments, the wine, the blood. It all points to Christ. This blessing from Jacob to Judah is incredibly prophetic and beautiful. The picture of the people bowing down and Judah symbolizing a, a lion is, is talking about royalty. The scepter and the, the ruler's staff points to his leadership and power and authority. His descendants would be kings that would reign. He would have children born in the line of the tribe of Judah to be rulers. And the imagery in verses 11 and 12 speak to tremendous prosperity and majestic beauty. We don't have time to go in depth to, any of, to each of them, but we do need to talk about this. The royal line of Judah would ultimately culminate in Jesus. And we can read about that in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 16, tell us about the royal line of Judah. Matthew's the first book in the New Testament. Matthew's gospel starts with a genealogy. And in the first, I'm only going to read the first two verses. It says this, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And so the original readers of this text would have heard this, the book of the Genesis of Jesus. We've been studying through Genesis, the first book in the Bible, the story of original beginning. And Sinclair Ferguson said this, Matthew's book is the story of a new Genesis, of a new beginning. His gospel, and indeed the Christian gospel message as a whole, is about God establishing his kingdom and beginning what Paul called a new creation. So the royal line of Judah reaches its pinnacle at Jesus, the son of David. And as the gospel of Luke ends, Jesus' genealogy, he says the son of God. So he's not only the son of David, he's not only just a man born in the line in the, of the tribe of Judah, but he is the son of God, the one who ties all of human history together. He is the hinge, the God-man, the Messiah, the promised seed of the woman to crush the snake and end the curse. He is the anointed king, Jesus. Now, unbeknownst to Jacob, he was describing his savior in vivid imagery, which is amazing to think about. As Ian Duguid points out in his commentary, Jesus is the true lion of the tribe of Judah, as Revelation 55 explains. And he says this, and I quote, 
Jesus is the one to whom judgment and rulership truly belong. The one who came to earth to redeem his people. That is why Jesus turned water into abundant wine at Canaan in his first miracle, using jars that were meant for washing. That is why Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a colt, the fowl of a donkey, as the humble yet powerful king who saves his people. Jesus is the promised one of unmatched beauty to whom the obedience of the nations belongs. Jesus is depicted in the book of Revelation, riding on a white horse, wearing a robe dipped in blood, in order to tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty by defeating and judging all of his foes. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. End quote. Can you believe that that king, that that Jesus, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, would come through this family tree? Would come through Judah? Like God brings Jesus through a line of sin-damaged offspring. It's amazing. Jesus doesn't, he doesn't play the victim to his family's line or, his, or the sin patterns found in his family. We want to see Jesus doing that. No matter what anybody tells you, no matter what you might hear in your own head, you do not have to be bound to your family's sin patterns. You don't have to be. You don't have to be a slave to those because God's grace triumphs over any sin. The major theme of this entire chapter is God's grace. It's by God's sovereign grace that Jacob is alive right now. And that any of Jacob's sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. God in his perfect sovereign grace chose Jacob from our human perspective. Right? The inheritance, the firstborn inheritance and blessing should have gone to Esau, not Jacob. And from our human perspective, the royal line should have been Joseph's and not Judah. Why would God choose Judah and not Joseph? Because God is, is teaching us that his grace is set on the least likely. As Spencer said, on, the, on the, the neediest of people, right? To remind us that we should be astonished that anybody is saved at all. Every one of us who have been forgiven have been forgiven because of God's sovereign grace. Nothing within ourselves drew us to him or drew God to us. God's grace was sufficient in Jacob's life. His grace was sufficient in Judah's life. His grace was sufficient in David's life. His grace is sufficient in your life and in my life. For Judah and Joseph, he reserves the longest blessing, but to all of his other sons, Jacob gives about one or two lines. And we don't have time to dive into the, the detail of each of them, but we're going to mention them briefly. Look at verse 13. It says, Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. So Zebulun's descendants, we're going to overlook major trade routes. All right? And when he's talking about Issachar, He's, he refers to him as a strong donkey. So, and, and it says, when it says that they, they chose the resting place, a land that was pleasant, and that they bowed their shoulder to bear, they became a servant of forced labor. It's talking about Issachar's descendants would rather work for other people like animals in forced labor than to labor in a less fertile land. So they chose the comforts of servitude over freedom. And then in verse 16, it says, Dan shall judge his people. The name Dan means to judge. And his tribe would produce one of the most famous judges, Samson. Samson would come through the tribe of Dan. Now, many people believe that he would be the fulfillment of the viper here spoken by Jacob. 
the, his stealth and strength and treachery and, and trickery, that he, that's how he defeated the Philistines. So Jacob knew all about God's grace and unexpected patience and great mercy, and that's why we find something very unexpected in this blessing over Dan. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. That seems kind of out of place, right? It's like an interruption in the prophetic blessing. Jacob includes this plea. It's like a, a prayer. It's like he's communing with the father while he's speaking this to his sons. And, and this is a prayer, a plea for salvation. The word translated in the Hebrew salvation is Yeshua, which is the name Joshua. That's where we get that name from. Joshua means Jehovah is salvation. And in the Greek, that's where we get the name Jesus. So Jacob understands that his family would be absolutely undone without God's sovereign grace. In verse 19, he says, Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. And Jacob, even on his deathbed, is being poetic here. Because this could read that you have a troop. Raiders are a troop. A troop shall say to the troop, but he shall a troop be at their heels. So he's using... Po, uh, poetic language, and he's saying that the Gadites would be experts in war. They would be valiant men, according to 1 Corinthians 5. And Moses would compare them to a great lion who would tear the arms and heads off of their enemies. You can find that in Deuteronomy 33, verse 20. And to Asher and Naphtali, he gives blessings of, of promise. Asher's descendants would be fruitful in harvest and trade, and Naphtali's would be flourishing in rich natural resources because they would be surrounding the Sea of Galilee. So these prophecies to Gad, Asher, and Naphtali have great hope, victory, and prosperity. And no surprise that Jacob would reserve his longest blessing for Joseph. This blessing recounts all of Joseph's life in great summation, that he was a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a spring. His branches ran over the wall. Everywhere Joseph went, God blessed everywhere he went. Every household he touched, but evil had its way with him. The archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile, so he was attacked betrayed, sold, left for dead, stabbed in the back, mistreated, double-crossed, conspired against, and unjustly punished. But Joseph survived and came out stronger than before because of God's sovereign grace. It says, by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. So Jacob and the psalmist knew that his God was a shepherd savior. In Psalm 80, it says, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Because it was only because of God's sovereign grace that any of them were saved and that they received the blessing. Let's pick back up in verse 25. Pay attention to all of God's blessings by the God of your Father who will help you, by the Almighty who, bless, who will bless you with the blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb, the blessings of your Father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May there be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who is set apart from his brothers. 
So divine blessings were pronounced on Joseph and his descendants. Blessings of children and blessings of land. And Jacob desired that Joseph's blessings would be even greater than Abraham and Isaac's blessings because Jacob realized, looking back over his own life, looking back over Joseph's life, that God used Joseph in a very special way in his sovereign plan. That God had set Joseph apart to be used beyond his brothers. God maintained Joseph's faith. God strengthened Joseph. God blessed Joseph. It was God's presence, God's power, and God's purpose which prevailed in Joseph's life. So God's sovereign grace saved the nation of Israel through Joseph's life. Think about it. Jacob would not even be speaking right now. He wouldn't be even giving this prophetic blessing if it wasn't for God's grace. And the 12 tribes of Israel wouldn't be alive if it wasn't for God's grace poured out on them through Joseph's life. We're going to learn more about that as we close Genesis 50 next week. And in verse 27, it says, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. This was a perplexing one. I learned a lot studying this one. Benjamin's descendants would be aggressive warriors who would be extremely hungry like ravenous wolves with a strong appetite and success in war in the coming centuries. The first king of Israel, King Saul, was a Benjamite. And he tried to devour David, God's anointed. Now, Saul of Tarsus, you might remember him as the Apostle Paul. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. And he was like a wild animal persecuting the church, tracking down Christians to put an end to followers of Jesus. But God's sovereign grace would transform him. Jacob's final words to all of his sons carried prophetic power. These are the heads, the leaders, the founders of the 12 tribes of Israel, the nation that would travel through the Exodus complaining all the way, desiring comfort, whining, ungrateful, a rebellious lot. Think of the generational effect of sin, the deep-rooted family sin patterns with idolatries learned from their ancestors that we see as we study through the Old Testament. Without God's grace through faith, everyone would die slaves to their idols and sin patterns. But that doesn't have to be our end. It doesn't have to be your end. It doesn't have to be my end. You can die well as Jacob did. Let's read the last few verses together. Starting in verse 28. All of these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. So although it seems like these were mixed blessings where some were exalted over others, some were passed over, some were given a double blessing, all of the tribes of Israel would find themselves in the promised land, just in different capacities. Alan Ross points out all of the sons of Jacob were blessed to carry the Abrahamic covenant forward. The various promises made to Abraham were channeled to the tribes, all sharing in some way in accord with their lives and traits. Now we know from the rest of the Bible that sin has consequences despite God's blessings, that Israel's descendants would be affected by their ancestors' actions. And it's true for them, it's true for us, right? The, the choices that we make today have consequences. If we have children, our choices have consequences for our children, right? Just as Jacob gave specific last words to each of his sons, he's about to give specific instructions for his burial, says he commands them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. He knows he's going to die. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from the 
from Ephron and the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. This dude has an incredible memory for 147 years old. Right, like he's on his deathbed and he's like, he's like, hey, don't forget your grandpa. Don't forget your great-grandpa. Don't forget what they did. Don't forget where I, what I did. Right, and it says, when he finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into his bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. What a picture. Jacob went to be with the people of God when he breathed his last. These are some incredible, powerful last words. He's reminding his sons, what a, a patriarch, the son of Isaac, the grandson of Abraham, reminding his sons of his grandparents and great-grandparents, of their grandparents and great-grandparents. And can you just imagine how much extra weight that would hold to his words, to what he's saying to them, to remember, to do? The father of the 12 tribes of Israel dies. Just like that, his life comes to an end. He lived 147 years, but he dies. As I was reading this week through many famous last words, I ran across one from an Indian chief whose name was Crowfoot, and he spoke some last words that talk about the brevity of life. Listen to this. He said, what is life? It is the flash of a firefly in the night. It is the breath of a buffalo in the wintertime. It is the little shadow which runs across the grass and loses itself in the sunset. Each one of us will breathe our last at some point in time, which we do not know. The question is, where will we be gathered? Like I said before, this is a good death for Jacob. This is not a fairy tale ending. The Bible's not full of fairy tales. In a fairy tale, it says they lived happily ever after, the end. They ride off into the sunset. Everybody's alive. God's word's not a fairy tale. It explains reality. It exposes our hearts to the grim fate that we all must face, that we will all die. But death is not the end. A few weeks ago, my boys wanted to watch The Lord of the Rings. If you've never watched those movies, they're really long. And my favorite is the third one, is The Return of the King. And in it, there's one scene in the midst of the battle when the forces of darkness have broken into Gondor's gates and destroyed their walls, and they're beating down the inner doors where people have retreated. And Gandalf the White, in his wisdom, is talking to Pippin about death, and this is what he says. Pippin says this, I didn't think it would end this way, because he thinks he's about to die. And Gandalf replies, end? No, the journey doesn't end here. Death is just another path, one that we all must take. How true is that? Tolkien, the author, was letting us feel the reality of death in the face of the brevity of life. Now, being a pastor has led me to be able to see many hills and valleys in people's lives. You see the weight of sin. You see the joy of life, the victory of a young man overcoming temptation, a young lady not caving to the culture wars, a young couple struggling with infertility, a single mom dealing with raising teenagers, or middle-aged couple forced to deal with their aging, dying parents. By God's grace, pastors get front row seats to new births, both physical and spiritual. But sadly, we also get front row seats to many deaths. And I've been to more funerals than I can count 
And I can tell you that our days are numbered, even though we don't like to think about it. Our time here on earth will end. But because of Jesus, the king of life, death is just another path, one that we all must take. For the follower of Jesus, our hope is beyond the grave. As the Apostle Paul said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. So are you ready to face your deathbed? Do you believe to live is Christ, to die is gain? I pray that this Advent season would be richer because of our study through Genesis. Because we know that our God is sovereign, faithful, and gracious. His covenant promises and blessings have come to fruition fully in Jesus Christ. May we sing with renewed joy. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Or radiant beams from thy holy face with the dawn of redeeming grace. May we be ever more amazed at God's sovereign grace this Christmas. I'd like to close by reading a very old hymn by Walter Smith, who was born in 1824. He said this, Earth was waiting, spent and restless, with a mingled hope and fear, faithful men and women praying, Surely, Lord, the day is near. The desire of all the nations, it is time he should appear. Then the spirit of the highest to a virgin meek came down, and he burdened her with blessing, and he pained her with renown. For she bore the Lord's anointed for his cross and for his crown. Earth has groaned and labored for him since the ages first began, for in him was hid the secret which through all the ages ran. Son of Mary, son of David, son of God, and son of man. Let's pray. God of all grace, we praise you for your word. We praise you that it is not a fairy tale. That you don't shy away from telling us the truth about our lives, how short they are, Lord, and how needy we are. How wicked we are apart from you, O oh God. And we praise you for the sovereign grace that we see displayed over Jacob's life and over his son's lives. We praise you for the 12 tribes of Israel. We praise you for what we can learn from them and from what we have learned from this passage. Lord, we praise you for all of these promises that have found their fulfillment in Jesus, our great God and Savior. And I pray if there's anybody here tonight who cannot say with utter confidence and believe in their heart, in their mind, in their soul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Lord, I pray that you would save them with your sovereign grace. I pray that we would worship you and exalt you right now in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.